we thank, we thank you that we're part of that kingdom that you have created, the covenant that you made long ago. And Lord, we ask that you would uh, take what we have given and use it to further your kingdom here and throughout the world. We ask that you would strengthen the saints that are found all over. And uh, Heavenly Father, use what we've given, what little we've given back. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the little boxes in the back. Please rise for the doxology. you've given us, we give back to you this small portion. And we pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So we're back in Hebrews chapter 11. From verse 1, now faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. This is from a different translation than your pew Bible, still very accurate. But sometimes from the different translations, we get a subtly different phrasing. By faith, we understand that the world has been created by the word of God so that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was attested to be righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For before he was taken up, he was attested to have been pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, for the one that comes to God must believe that he exists and that he blesses the one who rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became heir of a righteousness which is according to faith. Lord God, our Father, as we go through these, this hall of the faithful, Lord God, we pray that you would impress upon us, Lord God, that the lessons learned here, the things that are to be taught by these mere verses representing deep realities. We pray, Lord God, that you'd open our hearts and minds to accept these things, that they would become a part of the warp and woof of our soul, so to speak, so that we might know you, Lord God, and be, uh, become like the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this blessing in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, this is a very famous story. Is this too loud? Just checking. Last week it was too quiet, so now I've got it up. Is it okay for everybody? Just checking. Hey, so uh, Cain and Abel, it's so famous. People use Cain for just about everything. You know, there's even a chicken place named Cain something or other. What's it called? Raising Cain? 
Even the phrase raising Cain is a reference to Cain. So this is famous in the popular imagination, these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Of course, the biblical story is much deeper and much richer, but possibly not as fun, right? Like most stories in the Bible, it's there for a specific reason. We notice, and we'll be in Genesis chapter 4, that it's all the way at the beginning of the Bible, right? You basically have the creation, you have Adam and Eve, and then you have this story. So in the economy of God's revelation of himself in Scripture, it comes very early. There's something he wants us to get out of this as the flow of Scripture continues. Like all of Scripture, you don't understand any of it till you understand all of it, which makes it almost impossible book, right? But if you are opening up the Bible for the first time, the reason that the first verse is the first verse is on purpose, not an accident. And the reason this story happens very early in the Bible, also not an accident. Now, it is true that to really understand Cain and Abel, you've got to go all the way to the New Testament and understand Jesus, but that doesn't mean that it's not there on purpose. Let's take a look at it. Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read this part from the Pew Bible just to make sure I'm reading the same version as y'all. So in Genesis 1, we have the creation. In Genesis 2, it focuses on the creation of Adam and Eve, the human being. In Genesis 3, we have the fall. And in Genesis 4, already we're here. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And so the name Cain means produced a man. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering from the fruit of the ground and Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth and received your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer across the face of the earth. Now, I know it goes on from there. Uh, We'll get to that next week. That's about as much as we're going to be able to handle today to be able to speak to this. I was reminded again this week of why this specific specific theological tradition is so Bible-focused, why we do this exegetical methodology where we just go through the Bible verse by verse explaining them all. And the reason is so that the sermons and the teaching is dictated by the Bible and not by the conscience of any one individual. Uh, It would be easy to get up here and just start telling great stories at this time to give you a magnanimous view of the ethics taught here. But then we would miss the gospel by a mile. 
Think about this. It's dangerous to get up into a pulpit and to just teach ethics because everybody's got ethics. There's nowhere you're going to go in the world where there's not some religion, some natural knowledge of God, some right and wrong, some ethics to be taught. Is it the ethics of the Bible? Well, maybe, maybe not. The ethics of the Bible are easy to find. You can just read the Ten Commandments. But in getting deeper into this and what's going on here, you have to go beyond this just being a message about doing what's right and doing what's wrong. It's deeper than that. It's richer than that. It's a lot more dangerous than that. When we talk about this, first we have this aspect of one kept the ground. One was a farmer and one was a herdsman. A lot of you might think about the you know, uh, open range and some of the other movies you've seen in which there were battles on the American plains between the farmers and the herdsmen or the free grazers and the livestock keepers. And you would not be far off because there's always been conflict between these two. One has to keep the ground bound in and keep the animals out. The other is trying to feed their flocks. There's a different attitude in these two things. But also, you know, in the raising of sheep, you get to the issue of the sacrifice. Now, some very good theologians have gone a little bit of a different way on this. They've said that the fact that one gave a blood sacrifice and the other gave vegetables is not much of the meaning of the text. Everybody knows it has something to do with the text, but probably not much. Then there's this other tradition that I favor that that has a lot to do with the text. Now, here's why people have tended to say, you know, and people that I love, probably like my number one guy coming up in the face was R.C. Sproul, and he's one of those guys that says, don't focus on the blood and vegetables too much. Uh, But here's the thing. There does seem to be a presumption that because this is very early in the text, they can't have known about blood sacrifices and about God's requirement of blood. Now, there are two reasons why that might be wrong, just to get into the deeper theology of this. Number one, Genesis was not the first book written in the Bible. It was written by Moses. Everybody agrees about that. Moses wrote it down. But Moses' life happens much later in the story than Adam and Eve. Now, what our understanding of it is, is that Moses is a prophet. God told him specifically what happened thousands of years earlier so that we could know exactly what happened. But Moses did not know it by natural, ordinary ability. He did not know it by hearing stories from people. He went up on the mountain and he heard it from God and he wrote it down for you and me so that we could have an accurate record of the beginning of the world. So Moses wasn't there. He heard about it from a very considerable source and wrote it down. Did Moses know about animal sacrifices? They all came around under Moses, right? But also, uh, you know, we can't say Cain and Abel had no knowledge of God and the way that things were working or no knowledge of sin because they happen in Genesis chapter 4. Couldn't their dad have like sat them down and told them about sins and stuff? Remember, their dad was Adam. You think he knew a few things about God? Him and God used to hang out on a daily basis. Could he have rocks or whether or not they raised vegetables? Also, it has these important phrases here. Look at this. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. Now, these are things that come up in great prominence in the Old Testament once God establishes the sacrificial system and the temple and the priesthood, and he says to do it this way. I think it's pretty obvious that he also told Abel it was to be done this way. That there was a necessity of the shedding of blood in regard to sin and the worship of God. Why don't we shed blood up here? All of you know. 
that blood's already been shed in the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Otherwise, when you came to church this morning, we'd be killing stuff. I promise you. It'd be a bloody mess up here. And I'd probably be working in a bakery or somewhere because I'm not into all that. But here's the thing. Uh, They knew it had to be done. And here's the thing. When you get into these sacrifices, did God ever require of the people sacrifices and offerings of vegetables and vegetations and things grown on the farm? He absolutely did. Were they ever the primary gift that God demanded in regard to the exchange of sin and justification? They never were. So I believe with a lot of other theologians that have approached this, that that's the primary message of this. Now, Hebrews tells us the most important thing was that the offering was not given in and through faith. But secondary to that, it was done without the shedding of blood. I believe Cain knew what a right offering to God looked like, and he did not do it. I believe that one of the things this is talking about, Cain is the first one to establish his own way of trying to approach God when he knew better. Because here's the thing, if he really didn't know better, he just could have looked at Abel. He could have humbled his heart. He could have said to his brother, the way you're doing it is right, God approves of you. All I have to do is do what my brother's doing and I'll be okay. But there's this deeper thing going on here, right? There are appetites, there are hungers, there's a manifestation of the fallenness of sin in man, and that's what the picture is here. The picture of fallen man is he will tend to establish his own religion and then be mad at God and godly people when they don't follow that course. It's an incredibly dangerous message here. He had one-to-one communion with God, God talks with him about it, and God gives him a warning after the fact to try to correct him. God himself says to him, look, I'm going to warn you, sin's crouching at your door and it wants to have you. You can overcome it. Now, I know that this will start to tickle little Calvinist fancies in all of you in which you say, (laughs) you know, we tend to get straight to the metaphysics of it and go to this. Ultimately, it's the grace of God that's the difference between somebody coming to God and saying, well, yes, it's true, but he's not dealing with that. He's not dealing with the grand expectations of ultimate metaphysical reality. He's dealing with the proximate necessity of the fact that a man has to be for God or against him. There are many religions in the world. Religion is constant. Religion is everywhere. When you go through the Bible, what's the thing that it talks about when it says that Jesus Christ came? It says God even forgives the other sins before he came, but now everybody should know exactly who the real and true God is because he's come in the person and work of Jesus Christ and he has risen from the dead, so nobody has any excuse anymore. One of the most dangerous words in contemporary society is God because you can put anything you want in it. The entire Bible from beginning to end is filling up that word with the God that is rather than the God of human imagination. Here, he gave God a sacrifice. He gave God an offering, but he did not combine it with faith, and he did it however he wanted to. The vegetables, the vegetations, they don't really speak of death the way the animal does. We have that famous verse that says, Uh, in Leviticus chapter 2, that the reason it has to be an animal sacrifice is because the life is in the blood. That's a very famous one. Here's another one. Uh, This is from Romans chapter 9, so only two chapters before where we're reading, so we're not really guessing here. This is what was read before chapter 11 and what was written as the context for it. So when we read it, 
it does tell us what point he's getting to in chapter 11. In chapter 9, from verse 6, these preparations have been made thus. The priests who regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he goes but once a year, but not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, according to this arrangement and the gifts and sacrifices that were offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with human hands... He entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of calves and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal salvation. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Jesus Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So here it talks about Christ coming in his blood being the ultimate meaning of these things, but also the necessity of that it be with blood. We are a blood-free society. We don't like to see it. We don't like to touch it. Once in a while, we like to taste it. But how many of you have ever carved up an animal that you've shot? That's the real deal, right? That's where you see blood and you see guts and you really have to deal with what it is you're doing. The rest of us, we're just driving through McDonald's. We're getting the benefits of other people's bloody labor. We don't want to see it. We don't want to smell it. What is the worst smell in the world? It's when you're walking through the woods with your kids, you're out on a hike, and all of a sudden you smell something dead. And all they say is this, wow, daddy, something stinks. But you know that smell. Because there's nothing else like that smell in the whole planet, right? There's a lot of stinky things in the world. You go to France, they got stinky cheeses that are in competition for this stink. But there is nothing like the smell of death. Because it doesn't just say stink, it says death. And if you get a mouthful of it or you get it on your clothes, it's there for days, right? It lingers on you. It follows you around because death is so foreign to what we were created and made to be. You know, these things that they say, like death is just a part of life, or, you know, death's not a part of life. Death is death. Death is the end of life. There's no more life after death. Death is the baddest thing that ever was, the ultimate consequence of sin. So when God wants us to understand the consequence of our sin and be brought to Christ, he did it through the shedding of blood. There is no other sacrifice that is good enough to show what God has done for us. If you've ever, like, had to raise animals yourself, you know you kind of fall in love with them, right? You have to resist it because you, you get affectionate with them and all of that. And then the day comes when, okay, it's time to eat you now. It's an ugly process, right? It's a little bit hurtful. But at the same time, it's got to be done, right? Because you need to survive. And turns out chickens are made of protein, right? So there's this thing in there that we know we're in conflict with death but death teaches us so much about life. There's this aspect in which, you know, it, I don't know if you've ever lost your first person. You know, some of us are getting a little gray. We've lost a lot of people. Uh, you never really know how wonderful and amazing life is, and you're never quite 
as enthralled with it until you lose your first person, then you find out death's terrible. Life's good. Death's horrific. Death's evil. In this beginning place, in Genesis, uh, he knew that there had to be death to ensure life, and instead of doing what was right, he threw it away. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, it wasn't just that it was vegetables. It was also that he didn't put it together with faith and zeal for God. In regard to appetites and hungers and those kind of things, you guys have read the statistics. This last year was the first year in American history in which the number one cause of death was the use of drugs rather than something else. Rather than heart disease, rather than car accidents, rather than anything else, people are literally drugging themselves to death. I don't mean to say it to be scary, but it's a shocking, shocking statistic. You know, COVID is like way down here in the causes of death. Drug use is way up here. And we have to think to ourselves, what is causing this change in society that people, even though they're not trying to, are drugging themselves to death? Well, I think there's a one-to-one correspondence between the absence of Jesus Christ and the public life of the United States of America and the surge in drug use that would cause it to be the number one cause of death in the world. This emptiness that they're trying to fill. You know, almost every one of the drugs is a plant, right? They're trying to just eat their way into happiness, into peace, to have a little taste of heaven, apart from heaven itself. They're trying to get the reward without going through the process, without being reconciled to God. They're trying to get God. You know, there's a lot of drugs, you know, I've never tried. I'm never gonna, right? Because I've known too many that have gone down that road. And it always starts with that one time, and then, after a while, that's all they want. Their hunger and their appetites are so vociferously focused upon this thing that they'll give up family, and they'll give up safety, and they'll give up life, and they'll give up your property. They'll give up anything just to get this thing, to have it again and again and again, so they can feel this certain way. Now, I'm not saying I know exactly what it is, but I know this. In the times when I take the time... To sit down with Jesus and to pray and to read his word and to be in concert with God, I am at perfect peace. I have need of nothing in this life or out of it. I know who I know. I have tasted heaven on earth and I expect it to be a thousand times better when I get there, but I taste a little of it now. The peace that we're supposed to have with God is the basis for peace everywhere else. And going any other way to try to get to that peace will always end in abject failure. Here, what Cain does is he also starts to hate his brother. Now, his brother didn't do anything to him. His brother did something to God, right? His brother didn't do anything to him. He did something to God, and God favored him. And God looked on him and accepted his sacrifice. God accepted Abel in the beloved. And so Cain hated him. He was distanced from his brother because God loved his brother. And he wouldn't accept Cain's sacrifice, even though he gave him a sacrifice. You know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Going into McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Going in the garage doesn't make you a sports car. It's not just about religion. It's about relationship. It's not just about religion. It's about relationship, right? He has to know you You have to know him. It has to get deeper and richer, and it getting deeper and richer is good. It's never bad. 
in our society, there's this other thing that happens in religion where they take true religion and they rework it until it's almost unrecognizable in order to bring everything into religion that God said not to have in religion. There are entire religious movements that are all just about making sure God gets his vegetables. But it has to be with blood. And it has to be through faith. Uh, in this, you know, in the liberal churches, of course, they don't believe any of this happened. This is just supposed to be a nice moral story. There is no nice morality in this story. If it's not about Jesus Christ and death and the resurrection from the dead, it is about nothing. It's not just about, well, you really should like your brother more. It's not a morality message. It's really not. If it were just a morality message, it would be a completely immoral morality message, right? God would be the bad guy, because why won't he take these vegetables? Cain's just trying to keep up with the, keep, with the Joneses. Then he gets to this phrase, am I my brother's keeper? One morality thing that's being made here, that's being said here, is you should seek not just religion, but true religion all your life. When you worship God, you should worship God the way he said to be worshipped, not the way you think he should be worshipped, because otherwise you're making up your own religion and he finds that offensive. I know this is hard for people to hear, but God finds your attempts at making up his religion offensive. Not just, eh, I'll just brush it off because I like you. He finds it personally demeaning and offensive when we make up our own things to make him happy. You're not smart enough to make up a whole religion for him. He will tell you how he's to be worshipped, and if you love him, you will do it the way that he wants it done. If you do it some other way, he's not going to just willy-nilly brush it aside. He's going to become angry. He doesn't accept just anything and just everything as being legitimate worship. Now with this, when God says to him, where's your brother? Does God know where his brother is? So there is, you know, there is this aspect of this. There is personification here, and there is what they call theomorphisms and theopapisms, where God talks as if he doesn't know for the sake of the story, when really we know that he does know. And does Cain know that he knows where his brother is? Cain probably knows. I'm not saying that Cain was the best theologian ever in human history. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he knew a little more about God than we give him credit for in the story, just because it's early in the story when he probably knew quite a bit. And then he says, am I my brother's keeper? Let me ask you this difficult question right now. Because here where it gets to the morality play here. Uh, are you your brother's keeper? I've heard people, I've heard Christians say this. You know, well, look, we can't be our brother's keeper. That's not the point here. The point's not that Cain has a legitimate gripe. I'm not my brother's keeper. I killed him. That's not the point. The point is, of course, you're your brother's keeper. Your well-being and your brother's well-being are tied in together in a mutual relationship of love that's an expression of God's love for every person. God the Father and God the Son, they have a perfect relationship of love that's eternal. God the Holy Spirit loves the Father and the Son. When people were created in his own image and likeness, he expects them to love each other the way the Father and the Son love each other. You are always, and on every occasion, your brother's keeper for their well-being. And ultimately, let me put the burden on you of the text, for their salvation. I know you can't cause it, but in that you have the opportunity to facilitate it, you have a calling of doing so for every person on earth. 
Do you feel the weight of that? I do. Lord God, our Father, as we continue in this text, we just pray that you would open up new insights here for us, that you would tell us these things, Lord God, and enrich us with the knowledge of you. It's shocking and staggering to us, Lord God, that you require the shedding of blood for the remission of sin. And yet at the same time, what else could it be but death, Lord God, that is the means through which you bring us to new and abiding life? We thank you for this blessing in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise as we sing number 161. today at 5.30 for next week for Communion Sunday. So uh, if you want to sing, we'll see you then. 
People of God, look up and receive the blessing. May the Lord your God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.